We're going to go through a relatively longer text this evening, Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. And we're going to begin by reading God's word. Mark 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spear which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and he saw him immediately. The spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying and throwing him into, a, into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the, boy, and the boy became so much like a corpse, and most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and raised him. He got up, and he came into the house. And when he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just revealing just the compassionate Christ that your son is, and how in this narrative we see just a little bit about, more about how you love and show kindness to those in need. And at the same time, we see just the struggles of faith in our life. I pray that as we walk through this text that we would apply and see the principles in our lives so that we can grow in our faith. Lord, it is so easy for us to, to have moments of doubt and uncertainty but Lord, help us with our unbelief, Lord. Be with us this evening. Give us attentiveness and focus. It's your son's name I pray. Amen. Faith goes beyond the reality of our senses. In our modern day, that word faith seems to be diluted. We see the culture when they look and think about the word faith faith, they think faith is feeling or believing something even though the evidence goes against it. 
But that is not actually what faith means. Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, describes it this way, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's this internal trust that you have. And I think that's actually a more accurate term when we think about the word faith. It's more than just knowing things about a certain object, but it's really putting your trust into it. It's believing it. Believers are called to live by faith. And faith, in our culture, is misunderstood in different ways. I think one way in which our culture sees it is it's almost like some sort of currency. I have a tremendous amount of faith, and therefore God give me something. I should have this certain outcome because I have faith. We see this, especially for those that end up denying the faith. If you see those that uh, people in your life that end up going through some sort of trial and then they end up leaving the faith, you ask, why did you have faith? They'll often say, I had faith, but God did not answer my prayer. It's as if there is some sort of quantity of faith that they need to have in order to move God to a particular action. We see this obviously in the prosperity gospel or the Pentecostal movements. Uh, definitely the prosperity gospel. The reason why you're not healed, the reason why you don't have money is because you don't have enough faith. That if you somehow can gather more faith in your life, then therefore you can exchange it for something that you want in this life. Another way people think of faith in our culture is that faith is somehow this wishful thinking. You know, uh, the Bible talks about faith as an objective reality that, we, that we're thinking and we're trusting in something that is true. But we are not called to have faith for the sake of faith. We don't have faith on just some nebulous feeling or action. Faith on faith is wrong and is not what the Bible teaches because that's what you call positive thinking. And positive thinking dulls the person, but not true faith. True faith encourages, it strengthens the believer. Faith, if you want to think another way, is a word for trust. When we say that you have faith in Jesus Christ, we're saying that you trust in the things that are revealed in Scripture. And in this entire narrative, entire gospel, we're shown more and more about the life of Jesus so that we can learn to trust him, so that we can learn to have faith in him. Just again, think about the original audience. They are people that are being persecuted. They are wondering if this whole Christianity thing is worth it. And when they got the opportunity to study and read the Gospel of Mark, its design is to show them that Jesus is the Son of God, that their faith is not a dead faith, that their trust in Jesus Christ has an ending, that it leads them to somewhere real. Throughout this entire section so far, in chapter 9, we saw how Jesus transfigured before the disciples that he went with the three inner circle, and he, he, he changed right in front of them. And in that moment, they were able to experience something that would carry these three disciples all the way into glory. That in this moment, when it happened, they didn't understand what was going on, but eventually it imp had such an impression in their life that they were willing to die for Jesus. They saw in this moment Jesus becoming who he really is, this divine son of God. And they, and they saw that cloud where God the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then they went, as they were going down the mountain, 
they were wondering and they were trying to figure out, doesn't Elijah, isn't Elijah supposed to hear, come here first? And Jesus explains to them that this Elijah does come, but, the, but the, 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 the main thing is that they need to understand that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Now, the disciples, along with Jesus, is coming down the mountain here. And he goes and ex- has, he confronts these individuals. And oftentimes, as I just read through Scripture, you've seen Jesus do a miracle. And every time Jesus does a miracle, it's supposed to teach them something about the kingdom of God. Whether it's someone that's deaf, he heals them so that they can give them like a parable or, or an illustration of what it means to be spiritually deaf to spiritually being able to hear. Or someone that's blind, that's able to see, that was blind at one point, able to see, and it's just like how spiritual blindness, and only the, only the Lord can open blind eyes. Or the person is sick, and that Jesus is heal, can heal them. Just again, showing how our condition is, that sin makes us sick, and the only cure we have is in the gospel. The cross brings forth the greatest fulfillment, and Jesus does all of these miracles and healings, yes, to authenticate that he is the Messiah, but also to tell them of the kingdom that is to come. So how does faith work in this life? What is Jesus trying to teach them? Jesus is trying to teach them how faith works. Faith is always a response to the thing that you know. And I know in our culture, they think, well, we don't live by faith because we believe in science. But they're actually saying the same thing because believe and faith are the same word. They believe in something like they don't really see. Right? People that are against Christianity oftentimes say, well, my senses tell me that these things are true. I can see things about the world. But the scripture tells us, yeah, we look at creation and it testifies to the fact that God is there, that there is a creator in the midst of all of creation. Everyone lives by faith. Everyone trusts in something. It's just, it's just whether that object of the trust is going to keep, uh, whether that object of the trust is definitive is only revealed in Scripture. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at this, and we're just going to kind of walk through the text, and I'll give us some application points at the end. Notice in verse 14, it said, And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. This narrative here, this scene, is actually in the other Gospels as well, but this is the longest of all the Gospels. This actually explains a lot more than, the, than Matthew and, and, uh, and Luke. And it's fascinating because this is, again, written by Peter, and he's really retelling this significant, the scene. And I think it's fascinating that right after Transfiguration that end up giving them this uh, encouragement and boldness to die for Christ, he talks about this because I think in the life of Peter, he saw his own failings, his moments of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And he is going through, he, he remembers this narrative, he, he writes it down, or he tells it to Mark to write this down, just to show what Jesus was trying to teach him. Because at this point, Jesus is toward the, end, toward the tail end of the ministry, and Jesus knows that he needs to equip the disciples, because there's going to be a time where he's not going to be with them anymore. And they need to learn all that they can from Jesus, and they're, and they're supposed to cherish those things so that they can go and represent him well whether it's building churches or planting churches or evangelizing the lost, Jesus is going to appoint these disciples to do his great commission. And he needs to teach them and show them that he is the Messiah. 
And they, they came down, meaning the, the, the three disciples and Jesus, they came down and then back to the disciples, that's, that's the other uh, nine. So there was a special trip that the other three went, but then the other, 12, the other nine were down there in the mountain. They saw a large crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. The scribes, we know, they're like the chief theologians of the day. And oftentimes when they appear in this gospel, they're really trying, they know the scriptures, they know the Old Testament, they're always trying to debunk uh, Jesus and the disciples. So it seems like at some point there was a transfiguration happening, and as they were going down, at some point in between that, this event was going on, that this demonic child was, was brought by the father, and the disciples were unable to heal. So this is already, you know, Jesus coming in in the middle of all of this, and the scribes were arguing with him, and you could just imagine this tension here, because at some point they were able to do this. Earlier on, Jesus gives them a command that said they're going to be sent out, and, there's, and they were able to cast out demons. This is Mark chapter 6, verse 13. And they were casting out demons and were anointing them with oil, many sick people, and healing them. So for whatever reason, in this moment, the disciples could not do it. And the scribes were taunting them, trying to get the people to go back, either go to Judaism or go back to Judaism. He's arguing with them, and then there's this, and the disciples are unable to do what they should be able to do, and there's this confusion with the disciples, and, and then the scribes are using this as a reason to not believe in Jesus. Notice verse 15, and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, this is Jesus here, they, they saw him, they were amazed, they were stunned, and, and, as, and as they ran up, they, they were greeting him. They swarmed our Savior, verse 16, and Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them. So here's he talking to the crowd, where he arguing with the disciples. And it explains that in the, one of the crowd, it, you can just kind of imagine that one of the crowd answered him. That it's funny that the scribes did not challenge or the disciples answered because they're arguing and then there's this, the father is the one that goes up. Now I wondered why that was the case. I would imagine the disciples were embarrassed by this. You know, they were appointed by Jesus, and they are commissioned by Jesus to cast out demons and heal people. They did it for a while, and for some reason, this case was different. And the scribes, I think they were just wanting to just see the action. They didn't want to challenge Jesus, because they know that he's like the big boss. He, they, they might not be able, they could take the disciples, but Jesus is a whole different story. But this one man comes up to him. He said, teacher, I brought you, my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him on the ground, he foams in the mouth, he grinds teeth, and he becomes rigid. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. This demon was able to go get possess this child. And it is fascinating, and we've seen this before. It's an interesting study in demonology because the, there's always a question, like, does this happen today? I think... It definitely happened a lot more back in the day, and now it may not happen in our country here because there's already a lot of people that don't even trust in the Lord. So there's uh, different ways in which the devil will try to convince people not to believe in Christ. I think they're more subtle and secretive, but they're definitely finding ways to be more sinister. And I think any, every false teacher are demonically possessed. I think every institution that any engine of evil in the world is demonically possessed. But at this time, there, there seemed to be this very raw demonic possession that, that ends up hurting people. And it may, apparently, it's about, to, it's about to make, it's able to make the child mute. 
And all, when you look at verse 18, all of these symptoms here, whether it's slamming his head on the ground, foaming in the mouth, grinding his teeth, you think, oh, this must be some sort of epileptic episode. But it isn't. I think secularists and liberal Christians try to argue that this is just some medical, something wrong with them medically, and that there should be a solution. He wasn't demonically possessed. They're trying to find a rational reason to explain the situation. But if it is some health issue, I think Jesus would be able to discern it. Right? The Alpha and Omega, the one who knows all things, he's able to discern it. He looks at the situation, and he knows that this child is possessed. It says that whenever it sees him, this implies that there are moments when this child is lucid. There are times when it seems like the child is able to talk at some point, that he seems like just a regular kid. And 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 then he'll have these episodes, and he will sense that this demon is with this child, and and it ends up hurting himself. It says it slams him to the ground. It is said that all it takes... It's three concussions to end the life. That's why even in the NFL, there's like, if you have too many concussions, you have to retire. Because, and this is, you know, football people with gear, right? Imagine a child doing this to himself because he was demonically possessed. And this father, just desperate, trying to help this, his own child, he brings him to the disciples, and they could not do it. You could already know just by, just by the fact that earlier when we read the text, why couldn't they do this? Because they lacked faith. And Jesus responds in verse 19, and he answered them saying, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. There's this almost like a sanctified frustration that Jesus has with his disciples. Because he's, and it's, I think it goes beyond just the disciples. I think there is also unbelieving crowd. There's people that know of Jesus, but yet they're, they're struggling in their faith to believe him. It says, how long should I be with you? And maybe another way, but it's how long can I put up with you? He's bearing with them, and he sees the fact that they lack faith. Uh, it, it like no matter how many evidence and miracles that Jesus demonstrates before them, they still seem to struggle in trusting in Jesus. Faith is the response to the revelation of God. And yet these people, when they see, when they've seen Jesus do all these miracles, they still fail to trust him. I wonder if that's some of you in your life. You see how God has been gracious to you. You pray for things, and God answers these prayers in your favor. You think about God's word, and you see how God has delivered you from sin and made you live in a way that's more pleasing. You have victory over your sin, and yet there's still these moments where you doubt him. Faith is a response to the revelation of God. And if we have the scriptures, the more we know of the scriptures, the more we know of God in scripture, the greater our faith becomes. Somehow, even the disciples still fail to trust and believe in him. God is not asking you to trust in nothing, but to trust in him. I mean, we have divine revelation. That's our main priority. God's word tells us who he is. We have natural revelation. Just looking at nature, we could see that God is real. We even look at the fact that there's moral, we have a moral compass. That's also evidence of the fact that God is real because Scripture tells us what this is. Why do we feel bad when we do bad things? Why do we feel bad when we see bad things? Because all of these things are part of God's design to show us that there is a God, 
And that God is the one God of Scripture. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground. He began rolling, foaming to the mouth. And it's fascinating because the other account implies that the demon recognized Jesus. That when, he, when the boy went up to Jesus, this is like his way of almost like trying to, it has this fearful way of saying that he, he knows who Jesus is, he's, a, he's afraid of Jesus, and he's tossing this boy on the ground. And he asked his father, Jesus asking the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can't do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, I just said earlier that Jesus is omniscient. But why would he ask a father? Why does, if he knows what's going on, why, if he knows that this child has been demonically possessed since childhood, why would he ask this question? I think he sometimes asks these types of questions, not because he doesn't know, but I think it's so the crowd can understand more of the context. This is the compassion of God that we have. He, he's, <clears throat> he's not asking because he wants to, he needs knowledge, but his way of connecting with the Father. I mean, we know that in Scripture tells us that when we pray, God already knows our prayers, but we still ask him anyway. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing. He just wants to relate. He wants to understand. And he said, it's from childhood. And just imagine yourself, put yourself in the picture, in, in, in the position of this father or a parent. You, you, the child is born, you have so much excitement for this kid. You play with them, eventually they learn how to crawl, and that's both excitement for parents and also the greatest nightmare. And you notice this kid crawling around, tends to go to, towards the fire, and that seems amusing and funny at first, because maybe the kid doesn't know. And then when the kid begins to walk, he starts going to the water, and you think, oh, maybe he just wants to play in the water. All kids are like that. But gradually, as the kid got, gets older and older, it's no longer silly anymore. It was serious, because it wasn't just that this kid was just wanting to know about fire or water. He noticed that this that his own child just wants to hurt himself. And at first, maybe as a parent, they don't understand. You try to tell the kid, pull him back, hey, that's not good, you're going to get burned. And the kid goes on anyways. And when you look in the eyes of your own child, you notice there's something off about him. In fact, other passages of Scripture describe him as acting like a lunatic. And you're desperately trying to protect your child. You know that, you know that he is going to hurt himself. And it seems like random, right? So, so whenever it seizes him, they don't know when this is going to happen. You can just imagine the exhaustion. You have this moment in your, when you have a child where you're tired from just waking up and trying to nurse the child or rock the child to sleep. And when they're getting older, you think that they become more and more independent, but they become more and more of a liability. This child is getting worse, and the parent is desperate. And you could just imagine just all the family members, how exhausted they are, how desperate they are to try to make sure that this boy stays alive. This parent probably tried to heal and bring him to different witch doctors and medicine, and nothing worked. And then I could just imagine this dad holding the baby, just weeping, hoping, holding tightly so that he doesn't run off and hurting him, end up hurting himself. That's why Jesus asked him, 
just to be empathetic. And he says, he asks him, if you, if you can do anything, take pity and help us. Again, the word us here is implied that this child hurts not just himself, but others around him. Whether it's physically or emotionally, they see this child and is a burden to everyone. So, he's des- so this father brings him to the disciples and they can't do anything and he's frustrated. Now Jesus comes and he's asking him to give him pity. And this is a prayer to the Lord and he's desperate. And this is, and you can see just the compassion of our Savior here. He says, if you, and Jesus said to him, if you, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and was saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. He was desperate. And he knows that there's a part of him that still questions Christ. Again, this is the expression of just, of, of, of some faith. It's, it's not as great as it can be, but it's a little bit. He admits his own doubt. He's humble enough to acknowledge the fact that he, he wants to believe. He doesn't want his child to stay in this condition. He himself doesn't even want to stay in this, uncondi- this condition of unbelief. He's asking God to give him the grace to believe. And this is just the reality of our faith that God is never limited by our limited faith. Our God is so kind and merciful to us that when we go to him and acknowledge the fact that we struggle with doubt, that he gives us the faith. Faith or trust in the Lord is a grace from the Lord. It's a gift. The fact that we can continue growing in our faith and our trust in the Lord has nothing to do with our ability. It has everything to do with the Lord working in our hearts so that we can continue to trust and find hope in him. Verse 25, now when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. When Jesus did this, you can imagine the suspense. They see the kid throw in himself into convulsion, and for those skeptics that are watching this, they're hoping that Jesus is wrong. And for some of the people that are watching, they're hoping and, and really tr- hoping that this kid will get healed. And it's almost like, you can imagine the hearts of these individuals, some of them are, it's almost like a wager, like a bet, a gambling game. Who, what's going to happen to him? Some people, when they saw that kid just lay on the ground, they just said, he's dead. In the way, they're essentially accusing Jesus of killing this child. But, Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. He stood up. And when he came into the house, the disciple began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? Now, it seems like I just jumped the scene here. Like, it seems like the story just ends. Uh, he heals this boy. There, it doesn't say about, doesn't describe all the celebration or, uh, or any thankfulness from the dad. I think he skips this because I think Peter tried to get to the point here. He said, why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they cast this out? And they're questioning him privately because they can't do it publicly because they're like, oh yeah, what, why, what do we do wrong? And it's implied that maybe they were trying, maybe they, they did some incantation or chanting or saying something and it didn't work out. 
And Jesus' response to them was this. This kind, and the word kind here is like type. Uh, I think some commentaries debate on what that means. Like, there, is there like a different level and tiers of demons? And this is one particular category. I don't, I don't think it that way. I just think it's just the, the circumstance, with, uh, what they just experienced. Is that this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You must think, what, did the disciples not pray when they were trying to cast this demon out? I'm sure they said, Lord, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, let this demon cast, I cast this demon out. But what is Jesus saying when he said that they, the only way to get rid of this demon or this kind of demon is by prayer? I think what Jesus is trying to say is that the disciples at this point they actually were not praying while trusting in the Lord. They can't do it, so they needed to trust in the Lord. It's implied, again, that they didn't pray or trust in him as they were doing this. They outwardly might have prayed, but inwardly there was a lack of trust. It's not simply about faith and faith, but rather faith in the Lord. At some point, as they were healing people and, and casting out demons and doing all of these miracles, I think it got to their heads. They actually believed that it was because of their own abilities. They trusted in themselves. They became self-reliant, and that is why they could not do this. It wasn't like they haven't done it before. It wasn't even that this demon was somehow an, a le- like, a le- like a higher level of demon. Rather, they just, at this moment, became so proud of, their, of the ministry that they were doing in those past several months and years that they stopped relying on Jesus Christ. And this is a lesson for us. Some of us here, when we started becoming Christians, serving the church, we have this complete dependency on the Lord. We think about when you're a young Christian, how you're constantly praying and asking the Lord to give you insight into his word. But yet, the more you study God's word, the longer you're in the church, somehow you believe that you're like a seminary grad or some master theologian that you, don't, you no longer ask God to give you insight into his word because you depend on your skills. You depend on your experience. You depend on how long you've been in the church. You depend on how many sermons you've listened to. You depend on everything under the sun except the son of God. Or you think about when you're serving, sometimes the reason why the Lord doesn't cause growth in your ministry, why people are not coming to saving faith, or why people aren't uh, growing in your teaching ministry is because you're focused so much on your own abilities and not trusting the Lord for the outcomes. You're, not, you're relying on your own strength. And Jesus tells us that without, that he's the, he's the vine and we're the branches, and without him, we could do nothing. And I think this is what's going on with the, in the lives of the disciples. They became so puffed up with their abilities that they did not actually go to the Lord and connect to God to do the ministry that, they were, that, the, that the Lord had called them to do. And Jesus is telling them that they need to go to him in prayer. Think about your own life. When you think about every area of your life, when you think about work, when you go to work, do you find yourself trusting in your own abilities so that you can work hard and get the paycheck? Or are you asking God to give you the strength to do the things that he's, that he's given you? When you think about uh, just even, when you just think about everyday life, in every area of your life, are you relying on him or are you trusting in your own abilities? Because if you're trusting in your own ability, eventually you will get burned out. You'll be so exhausted because you're trusting in yourself, not trusting in him.
So what are we supposed to do with this passage? I have two applicational points for us. First is this. Faith can only be increased by, knowledge, by the knowledge of, of, of the Lord. Faith can only be increased by knowledge of the Lord. This whole scene, Jesus is trying to give them more knowledge of him so that they can trust in him. I mean, that's why the inner circle went to transfiguration. They, uh, Jesus tried to reveal something to them so they can know a little bit more about them so that they can lead the church. They were supposed to be the foundation that the Lord's going to build the church upon. And for us, we understand that if you struggle with the faith, if there is doubt in your life, that doubt is actually very deadly. Doubt can often lead to apostasy. In fact, in Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 22, Jude writes, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Jude is writing in terms of doubt that you need to ask God for mercy. That if you struggle with doubt, then the solution is not to keep doubting, but rather you need to know God more. Because if you keep doubting, and eventually you will deny the Savior. Doubt in itself is not some sort of unforgivable sin, but it definitely is a gateway to unfaithfulness to the Lord. Doubt can often be dealt by knowing our, our God more. You need mercy and grace in times of doubt. I think sometimes in your own faith, the reason why you're struggling in your faith is because you're too reliant on yourself. You're not trusting in knowing God. You're not asking for the grace to know him. Because the more you study God's word, the more you see how frail you are and how much you need God in your life. And you need to have more and increased knowledge of who God is if you want to fight doubt in your life. Doubt can only Doubt can be nourished by unbelief or it can be combated by greater trust in him. The Lord knows our faith is imperfect and God gives us the means to keep growing in our trust in him. That is looking to him and in his word. Your faith cannot grow if you spend all your time with entertainment. Your faith cannot grow if you're constantly being distracted. Your faith will only increase by your knowledge of God because it will lead you to him. Faith cannot grow without the word of God. The cure for doubt is more of God, not anything else. Fighting doubt with truth is just a regular part of the Christian life. It is going to be a struggle. Your flesh is going to cause you to doubt. The world is going to try to cause you to doubt. Even the devil himself, if possible, he'll cause you to doubt. And the only weapon that you have against the flesh and the things of the world is scripture. It's knowing our Savior more. The object of our faith and the thing that we trust most will increase the knowledge of the holy. Doubt is cast out by greater devotion to the Lord, not less. If you see that in your life, if you're struggling with the faith, go to God. Go to God in his word. Go to God in, your, in prayer. And if you truly have a desire God will increase that desire for you to continue to trust in him. So not only is faith can, only can, faith can only be increased by knowledge of God, but eventually faith will become sight. Faith will become sight one day. And that should give you a tremendous amount of hope. Do you realize that there will be a point in your life 
where you no longer need faith. Faith is a temporal state in this side of eternity. The effects of our faith is eternal, but faith itself is not. Eventually, our faith will become sight. The thing that we trust, God himself, we will eventually be rewarded for it. There will be a time in eternity where we don't need to struggle with faith anymore. We, can, we, don't, we, we live in that experience. We live in that reality. There's no struggle with trusting because it's right before us. Doubt will be dead when we depart from this life and meet the divine. But in order to get there, we need to remember that this fight against doubt will one day end. And that should give us great hope that faith in the Lord, although we're struggling in this faith, is a temporal state. Because that we long for that day where Christ's return or, or the Lord calls us home, where that faith will become, that struggle with the faith will be no more. Knowing the struggle will end, will, should encourage us to keep going because the race will end one day. The journey has a destination and the faith that we have in the Lord will one day become sight. And I hope that this will encourage you to continue to read your Bible. I know the last several weeks, one of the application points is that you need to read your Bible more. And I really hope that this is your desire, that if you are struggling with the faith, that the solution is not to go on YouTube and try to just try to dole that, that struggle and just try to find ways to entertain yourself to not worry or be anxious, but to go to God's word, humbly go to him, ask him to give you insight into who he is, because it's only God's grace that we have faith, and it's only God that grants us this faith. And if you struggle with it, ask God, plead with him to help with your unbelief. Go to Lord in prayer. Father God, we know that in our sinful flesh that's, that we inhabit now, that there are going to be struggles in terms of trusting you. Lord, you are our rock. You are our anchor. And there's so many illustrations that we see about who you are that should keep us motivated to running this race. As a sojourner, as an, as an ambassador, or as a representative of you, or help us walk in a manner that is worthy of your name. Lord, in the moments that we have doubt, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of the cross. Remind us of what had what's taken place in the past so that we actually have a knowledge of you. We're thankful, we're thankful for the fact that you enable the Holy Spirit to help us, to come alongside us, to give us reminders of just our life and your faithfulness through our life, but more important, that your Holy Spirit gives us insight into your word. Lord, help us with our faith. We're so brittle and oftentimes faithless and unfaithful to you. Help us with that, Lord. Encourage us with your word. May, our, may we be faithful till the end. Is your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. We have two applicational points or discussion questions. Um, yeah, how can knowing God help me cast out doubt? And second question, what errors in my life am I trusting my own ability and not the Lord? Uh, yeah, two just two short questions. 